Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Amen. Good morning, church. It is good to see you. My name is Dwayne, one of the lead pastors here at the district. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Open them up to Colossians. Uh, we are going to be in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 12. And if you're joining us for one of the first times, uh, we preach through books of the Bible here at the District Church. We love God's Word. We uh, open our lives up to, to learn and love one another. And so all of that is guided by what He tells us and what He commands us and what He shows us in His revealed um, personhood of Jesus Christ amidst the Word of God. And so we always open it up and we always look to the books of the Bible to just walk through them verse by verse. And so that's what we just started a couple of weeks ago is walking through the book of Colossians. Uh, Colossians is a unique book written to um, a, a small church plant in the city of Colossae 2,000 years ago. And it's one of uh, Paul's 13 letters that he wrote to um, two different churches and individuals. And in this letter, what we kind of are able to see is how he is providing for this young church in a diverse uh, community, cultural diversity within the community, religious diversity within the community, ethnic diversity within the community. He's providing for them what they ultimately need, which is the preeminence of Christ. If they're going to have what is kind of referred to as syncretism, it's this meshing of all these different worldviews coming into kind of this melting pot of this culture, what he's providing for them is the way to navigate life amidst different worldviews and different belief systems and different ideologies is the foundation of Christ who created all of it. And so you've got to get back to Christ in order to actually be able to live out um, anything amidst a diverse culture. And so that is kind of why we have titled this Colossians, the book, um, but also the preeminence of Christ, getting back to Christ as our foundation and as the Bible refers to, the cornerstone by which everything is built off of. And so that's where we're at. We're in Colossians, and uh, we're going to look at verses 9 through 12 today, which is kind of wrapping up uh, really just this kind of massive introduction that he has for, for these people. And so I want to read verses 9 through 12 and then sort of uh, unpack it for us today. Starting in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Let's pray as we open this up. Father, we thank you so much again for what you have done for each one of us. We thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to, to be everything that we need, to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserve because we could not live a perfect life, and to be resurrected three days later, guaranteeing for us who believe that there will be 
a day of resurrection for us, a day of glory in which we will be removed from the sting of death, and the pain of sin, and that we will be in your glory forever eternal. We thank you for your Son, and we thank you that your Son, Jesus, sent the Holy Spirit to us bring remembrance of the truth found in Christ and to also guide us as we read this truth about Christ and not only to just understand it, but have it actually change who we are, to transform our minds and our hearts and our souls, to, to shift our affections away from things that are selfish to things that are selfless, to move us to become more and more like Jesus Christ on a daily basis. And it's ultimately for our good and for your glory. So we thank you, Lord. And we ask that that would happen for us today as we look at your word, that it would transform us from one degree of glory to the next. That we would become more like Jesus when we leave this room today than when we first came in. So we thank you, Lord. We ask that your spirit would move in us right now. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. One thing to note from this passage, is that Paul usually begins his letters, as I said, with a greeting and a thanksgiving. That's what he always does in just about every single one of his letters is, is a greeting, hey, welcome guys, what's going on? He also then says who's writing the greeting, and then he moves on to just providing a thanksgiving from usually either what he's witnessed and observed himself or what he's heard from others coming and giving um, kind of a rapport based on what's going on in that specific context. And so that's what we've seen him do. And then he usually moves on to a prayer or a petition, asking God for something for this group of people that he is writing this letter to. And that's exactly what he's doing here is he's moving on from the thanksgiving into this prayer and this petition that he provides today. And there's an interesting thing that I want to show you um, from this is that when he's giving thanks to the Colossians, He's giving thanks to them based on their reaction to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when Epaphras planted this church in Colossae, they had a reaction to that gospel. They trusted it. They followed it. They became believers of Jesus Christ. They adored him, loved him, had deep affection for him. And that laid out into how they lived their life. And so what we looked at in covering verses 3 through 8 was literally Paul hearing of their faith and love because of the gospel and commending them for what they've been doing in the gospel. Now the interesting thing here is now that he moves into praying and asking, it actually parallels with the exact same things that they've been doing. He's now asking them to continue to do. And so that's kind of why I titled this message to stay the course you're already on. Continue doing what you've already been doing. Because what we see here are some parallels. For example, in verse 6, and verse 9, you see, since the day you heard, and also since the day we heard. Verse 3 and verse 12, you see an idea of thanksgiving in both aspects of it. In verse 3 and verse 9, you see him use the language of always and not ceased. In verse 3 and verse 9, you see when we pray for you, and also praying for you. In verse 6, you see an idea of understood and also understanding in verse 9. In verse 6, also in verse 10, you see this idea of bearing fruit and increasing, and then also bearing fruit and increasing. So the exact same things that he thanked them for, he's also praying for that they would continue on. And that's very important for us because one of the things that we, or the reason why that is important to make note of is that the Colossians' good start and genuine progress should lead not to complacency, 
but rather a renewed effort to continue on. Because unfortunately, what, what do we do as, as humans whenever we've kind of executed something, we've nailed it, we, we, we've kind of graduated on from it, we usually kind of move on to something else. We, we become complacent in whatever that is. We, we think we've mastered it, therefore we can go on to something else. And what we see in Christianity is that's just not the case. There should never be a moment in which we quote-unquote graduate on from the gospel to move on to something else. Just because we've learned how to um, evangelize doesn't mean that we now no longer evangelize. Just because we've learned how to pray well does not mean that we can stop praying. Just because we've learned doesn't mean that we need to stop learning. So even though they've done this and he's commending them and thanking them on their behalf of what they've done and what God's been moving amongst them, he's then praying for them that they would continue on. Essentially what he's saying here is, great job, thank God, keep going. Keep going. Keep doing it. Keep giving yourself over to the gospel. Because what happens when you don't stay the course? Two things happen. One, you lose your affection for Jesus. And two, you lose your influence for the gospel. You lose your affection for Jesus and you lose your influence for the gospel. And I'll show you this based on Revelation 2, 1-7. I want you to go ahead and turn there. I want you to see this. Revelation 2, 1-7 through is a part of Revelation that the Apostle John wrote where he's seeing what the angel of the Lord spoke to the church in Ephesus. And as you might have heard me mention throughout this series is the book of Colossians and the book of Ephesians were both written at the same time in the same jail cell as the Apostle Paul's writing these letters out. And so they really do parallel one another um, as almost commentaries of each other. And so the same context of what happens in Ephesians can also be the same context and or warning that could happen to the Colossians. And so this is actually the warning that we see from the angel of the Lord to the church in Ephesus, which if you, if you have any kind of background in church and understanding of the Scriptures, like the church in Ephesus was one of the greatest churches across the Scriptures. I mean, they were just phenomenal in, in the, the impact that they had on their city to where they actually saw a majority of the city come to Christ to where secularism was in the minority of the city. You saw all kinds of riots happening because the socioeconomic system of the city shifted from um, idol factories to now worshiping Christ. And so there, it was just a huge, incredible influence of the gospel in the city of Ephesus. But this is the end of Ephesus according to Revelation 2, 1-7. through To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. If you're just reading verses 2 and 3 from a context of a church, you're thinking, that sounds like a solid church. I'm all about a church who, who, who worship or not worships, but just adores the Word of God. They, they, they snuff out false teaching. They endure patiently. They bear up for Christ's namesake. They don't grow weary. I mean, that, that's a beautiful sounding body of believers. But then you see in verses 4 through 7, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, 
Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, or the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What he's basically saying here is when a church becomes complacent or idle and bearing fruit and growing in the knowledge of God, it is actually not the activity of the church that ceases to exist. It's the power of the gospel in them that ceases to exist. I mean, when we look at this church in Ephesus, they're full of activity. They're full of ministries that are happening. But yet they've forgotten their first love. And to know what their first love is, you have to look at the planting of the church in Ephesus in Acts 19. And I'm not going to read all of Acts 19. I'm going to read the four verses that reveal to us what their first love was. Acts 19, 17 through 20 says this, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And so what you see in the middle, kind of verses 18 and 19 of Acts 19, is the behavioral modification that happened. They shifted from putting all their faith and trust into these, these different sort of um, practices when it came to magic arts and whatnot. They, they moved away from that and they placed their hope and trust and faith in Christ. And from there began worshiping Him by doing two things, extolling the name of Jesus and having the word of the Lord continue to increase and prevail mightily. That was their first love, treasuring Jesus and getting His word out to anyone and everyone possible. But what the church in Ephesus shifted towards was no longer treasuring and, and, and having affections for Jesus and getting the Word of God out, but rather than managing the practices of those implications. Managing the ministries of those implications. And it's not to say that the ministries are wrong. They're, they're necessary if you don't forget your first love. If you don't treasure Jesus. So when we become complacent, when we think we've done enough, when we think we've learned enough, when we think we've graduated from the gospel, when we think we've evangelized with success, when we think we've made a lasting impact in the life of another person, when we cruise, the first thing to go is treasuring Jesus. Always. We'll continue doing the activities of ministry for Jesus. But if we're not treasuring Him, then those activities and ministries actually become devoid of any chance of bearing any fruit. Then when you talk about burnout when it comes to a church doing the ministries of the church yet never seeing any fruit come from that, why? I mean, at that point, church becomes hobby and it's a hobby that you begrudge. It's a hobby that you hate. Because we're not seeing the treasure of Christ among us and we're not also seeing the gospel influence going out and impacting those providing hope for people who need it. Ministry without Jesus is sterile and unable to produce fruit. So what Paul's praying and asking for the church in Colossae is that they would continue to be filled up, that they would be satisfied with the knowledge of God's will, 
that leads to spiritual wisdom and understanding. You can just kind of uh, parenthesize that as, as, as just maturity. Asking them to grow in their maturity in Christ. Be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now when we talk about God's will, the question that always comes to mind is, what's God's will for my life? How many of you have asked that question before? What's God's will for my life? You didn't raise your hand. You're lying. <laughs> You've asked that question. What's God's will for my life? That's how it was always portrayed to me when I was younger. We, we, we've got to figure out what His will is. Where, where am I going to attend school? What am I going to do? What am I going to study? Am I going to graduate? Is that Your will, Lord? And then when we move on from there, it's who am I going to marry? What, 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 what's my career going to be? Do I have kids? How many kids? When do I stop having kids? Like We start to think through just all of these types of questions as if that's what God's will for your life is. And it's not to say that those things aren't a part of God's will for your life. I absolutely, 100% think that those things are a part of God's will for your life. But that not, is not the foundation for what he is meaning when he's referring to God's will for your life. What Paul has in mind is not some particular special direction, but a deep and abiding understanding and revelation of Christ and all that he means for the universe that we'll see in verses 15 through 20, and also for the local church, as we'll see in verses 21 and 23. Paul makes clear just what kind of knowledge of his will he's talking about by adding the phrase to it through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So the intent of Paul using the term knowledge is explained by him indicating these two other qualities that, that accompany it. Wisdom and understanding given by the Spirit. Because wisdom and understanding are actually two of the three intellectual virtues that even Aristotle mentions. The third is prudence. Interestingly enough, these virtues are literally described of just about every single biblical leader. Like Moses in Exodus 31.3, Solomon in 1 Chronicles 22.12, and also, as Proverbs 1.7 says, of those who fear the Lord. Believers possess these qualities that he is referring to. The combination of these suggests that the spiritually mature Christian has the ability to do a couple of things. Discern the truth and to make good decisions based on that truth. To discern the truth and to make good decisions based on that truth. And as we see, this comes only from God. A claim that Paul elaborates on in also Colossians 2.3. In Christ alone are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's why if you go back to the church in Ephesus, they may have all kinds of biblical ministry activity happening, but if they're not in Christ, they no longer possess the ability to discern truth and also to make good decisions based on that truth. Therefore, it all comes back to Christ. And it all comes back to the Spirit granting to us the ability to understand Christ in wisdom and understanding. Treasuring Him above anything else. Spirit-given insight into the will of God, accompanied with, as it says here, mental realignment, is what produces behavioral transformation. What we see next. Be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding which produces what verse 10 goes on to say. 
so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. In Jewish and even Gentile cultures in the first century, when this was written, the phrase to walk or your walk really is just capturing kind of a common phrase used to describe a person's lifestyle. As if it's this like road that you're traveling on, a journey that you're going on. That as you live your life, you're walking through it. That's why we've kind of adopted the phrases in Christianese, like, how's your walk with Christ? However, really better translated for us today as just, how are you living? How's your lifestyle? Or as we kind of try to provide some other liturgical, what's your rule of life? What's your rhythm of life? What's your routine look like? You can even add into that, what's your worldview? But what he's saying here is our lifestyles will only be transformed by the Spirit of God filling our minds with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and understanding. For that is what ultimately pleases the Lord. And given the context of this passage, especially with it being nestled right in with one of the most Christological passages written when it comes to who Christ is and His deity, the term Lord references the Messiah. Talking about Christ here. We're pleasing Christ based on being filled up with the knowledge of His will. That's important to know in a minute as I show you how this prayer is also a Trinitarian prayer where he's including all persons of the Trinity. So being filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding leads to a walk or a lifestyle, living out a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, which then produces, it moves on to bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul here is echoing the language of verse 6. The Colossians are to continue doing what the gospel is already accomplishing among them. He's just, again, praying for them what they've already been doing. One of the things to make note of regarding the language bearing fruit and growing is actually language rooted in the creation story. It's rooted in our creation story. If you're going back to Genesis 1 and 2 and talking about them being fruitful and multiplying of of cultivating society that is bearing fruit, that is actually displaying the image of God. It's actually displaying to other people what the character of God actually looks like. Because it's not just mountains who have the character of God. It's not just the oceans that have the character of God. It's not just let me get out into creation in order to see God on display. That was not meant to be what God's full display is. In the person of Jesus Christ, we see the full display of God just literally permeating everything in our culture and context. As Christ then comes to live within us, as Galatians 2.20 says, the life we now live in the body is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. So the life we now live is Christ living through us so that the full display of God's character is actually coming from believers. It's coming from us. So that what you experience when you go to the mountains or when you go to the ocean should be experienced from our society around us by engaging and encountering a believer. Engaging and encountering a Christian. Because in verse 6, the focus was on the extension of the gospel to many people. Here, however, it is the intensive growth of the gospel within each believer that is the focus. 
You being so filled up and matured within the gospel that when people encounter you, they're encountering Christ. That's the goal here. That's what he's praying for. Now that isn't enough. In the original language, which is Greek, Paul, in writing this sentence, which actually verses 9 through 15 are actually just one run-on sentence, actually is better referred to as a syntax, which is just a, a, a collection of phrases that he is using to really drive one point home. So as he's talking about this, it isn't, it isn't enough that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, which leads to walking a lifestyle in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, which gives way to bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul then continues his sentence by asking that they may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Now, in the middle of that sentence still lies a phrase that I think is hard for us to grasp. It can be difficult and honestly just daunting for us. And it's really back in verse 10. He tells us to live a life worthy of the Lord. How many of us feel like we're living a life worthy of the Lord? Okay, that, that's honest right there. All right? We all feel like we're not measuring up. And if, and if living a life worthy of the Lord doesn't feel like it's perfect enough... You've got Jesus coming from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.48. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So he's telling us to be perfect, not just in how you think perfection goes, but you need to be perfect as when you see the Father, whatever He is is what you must be. Okay. Not going to happen. Not going to make that work. That verse, or really the verses, should just make us squirm a little bit as how we're going to pull off those. Not suggestions, but commands. That's a command to live a life worthy of the Lord Jesus. That's pleasing to Him. How do we be perfect? How can we live a life worthy of the Lord? Paul here is reminding us that God being the good God that He is gives us what He demands of us. I mean, this to me is one of the best things about this passage. Is that God gives us what He demands of us. He demands you to love someone. He's going to give you the love to love them. He demands you to rest. He's going to find a way for you to rest. He demands you to be generous. He's going to give you the resources for you to be generous. God does not recruit you because of what you have. He saves you because of what you don't have. See, it's the weak that He uses to display His strength. It's the poor that He uses to disperse His wealth. And the form of this is be strengthened. It suggests that God's provisions are continuously available to His people. As He's qualifying us, as we'll see here in a minute, it's an ongoing qualification that He is actually providing for us every prerequisite and every qualification we need to actually execute the life worthy of the Lord that when He looks at us, He's actually pleased with us. Because He's providing what we need. And a beautiful thing to see in this verse is that the original language used for spirit is the term pneuma. 
and the spiritual wisdom and understanding that produces this way of living, the fuel is also attached to the Spirit. When it says spiritual wisdom, is pneumaticos with the root pneuma. So this idea of spiritual wisdom and understanding that we need to bear the fruit of all of these things is provided by the Spirit of God alone. It's coming from Him. So this being strengthened with power is directly coming from the Spirit of God. And the amazing thing we see here is that this phrase also is referencing the continued work of the Spirit even back to Acts 1.8. When there He says, for they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. That word for power, which is dunamos in the Greek, which is where we get the word dynamite from, that word is the exact same one that's used here. Be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. Whose glorious might? The Spirit of God. Pneuma. So the same power that began with the first church being planted in Acts 1, that then dispersed out the power of Pentecost and the power of um, five loaves and fishes and the power of uh, them adding to their number daily and the power to understand the Scriptures, the power to heal people and, and cleanse people, the, the power to do anything and everything that they needed is the exact same power that's continuing to flow out and through the Colossians that He's not only saying, I'm commending you and thanking you for living in it, but I'm also praying that you would continue to be strengthening it in it on a daily basis. We need it. This is why prayer is so important. Because what he, again, what He's saying is stay the course that you've already begun. The same power that got you through yesterday, you need to pray for today. That He would continue to fill it up within you. And this power is given to us for, again, some specific things. All endurance and patience with joy. Meaning no matter what work needs to be done, you will have endurance and the strength needed to accomplish it. And also, no matter what circumstances you encounter, you will have the patience needed to withstand it with all joy. A.K.A. no grumbling, but rejoicing in worship. Like You can't be shaken in whatever circumstance you're going through if it's the Spirit of God and His power that we're relying on, if it's our power and our spirit and, and, and kind of our little funky life that we're trying to work through and navigate and trying to bring in our worldview to try to understand our circumstance and how we're going to get through it, we're going to crumble and that's when anxiety comes into play. That's when, that's when you really start to kind of implode within yourself. And if you try to rely on the activity of the church and the ministries of the church to kind of Feel those things, not going to work. Church is going to let you down. Coming back to Christ, treasuring Him, being filled up by His Spirit that actually provides for us the power so that we actually don't demand the ministries of the church to serve us, but rather we engage within the ministries of the church to serve others. And then, in Paul-like fashion, don't boast about this power within yourselves, but rather, as he closes this out, give thanks to the Father who has qualified. And in the ESV here it says you, but it actually is translated us here. Who has qualified us. And this is where he actually begins to make the shift in this letter, not just directing it to the Colossians, but also directing it to all believers. As he's now talking about all of us. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He rounds out this petition and prayer by giving thanks to the Father 
who's the one that has made this all possible. So you can see this kind of Trinitarian prayer here where Paul prays that they would walk in a manner, manner worthy of the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, that they would be strengthened with all power according to the Spirit of God, and that then they would give thanks to the Father who is actually the one qualifying them to receive this power and to live it out. The entire Trinity, the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit at work within individual believers who are gathering together as a collected body of Christ do ministry among their context. You, we can't lose. We can't lose. Now, I would get into inheritance, but that is best uh, attached to verses 13 and 14, which we will cover next week as we head into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And that is going to be a good one. That one is, again, it's, it's one of the most Christological passages that you'll see, especially verses 15 through 20. But it's also sandwiching between this idea of being transformed uh, or transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son, working into who Christ is and the fact that He is all deity, to then finishing with how we were alienated from Him, but actually brought into the family of God. That is our inheritance that we will ultimately be receiving and that we will, again, walk through next week. But the point to take away from today is literally the title, an overall theme of his petition from the Apostle Paul. Great job. Thank God. Don't stop. Keep going. Keep growing in the gospel and treasuring Jesus above all else. Because that redemption that we'll see in verses 13 and 14, that redemption, the notion that He has redeemed us, that He's redeemed us, that He has purchased us at a price. And that price was paying for our lives with His own life, forgiving our sins by becoming our sin and nailing that sin to a cross Himself and killing it once for all. that we might be put to death with Him. And then as He was risen from the grave three days later, that we might be risen from what enslaves us and be free to live out a life that actually is worthy of the Lord. That's what we're after. That's what we're praying for. And if it's important for Paul to pray for this, and to, as he says, petition, Ask for it from the Lord to be granted to them. And it is so important for us to do the exact same thing. So this is actually how I want to close out. I'm done. Um, so I'm early. What I want to close out with is I want to get in groups of like five to six. I know we're, I know we're COVID, so let's, just, let's keep it your rows, all right? Let's just group around in your row, and let's just petition for this. And if you want, just read through it and pray for it. God, would you fill me up the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And just keep walking through it and pray together for one another that God would be doing this among us. And as we spend about five to ten minutes just praying for this, then I'll come back up, lead us in a time of communion. 
Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at